Hello, and welcome to the Lessons from Lab and Life podcast. I'm your host, Lydia Morrison, and I hope that our podcast offers you some new perspective. Today, I'm joined by Jonathan Gutenberg and Omar Boudier, who are the first McGovern Fellows of the McGovern Institute for Brain Research at MIT. And they're here with us to share their work applying CRISPR gene editing technology to diagnostic reporter assays. Jonathan and Omar, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having us. Excited to be here. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. Could you tell us about CAS-13 and how you're using it as a tool to detect um, disease states? Yeah, so uh, CAS-13 is uh, an enzyme that is associated with CRISPR systems. And, uh, you know, when the genome editing sort of craze with CRISPR was sort of taking off, most people were really excited about this one protein, Cas9, mm-hmm. and how we could sort of cut DNA and be used for genome editing. Um, and at the time, we were really interested in whether there were other enzymes within CRISPR that could also be useful for biotechnology purposes. Um, and at the time, we were more interested in DNA targeting. And so we built a whole sort of computational pipeline to search, you know, you know, tens of thousands of bacteria for new CRISPR uh, enzymes. And out of that search, we did indeed find more DNA targeting enzymes like Cas12. But there was this other enzyme that looked very different than them and actually targeted RNA that we ended up calling Cas13. And from that search, uh, we ended up, you know, characterizing this enzyme, showing that they could uh, actually cut RNA, degrade RNA, and in fact, even detect RNA. And so a lot of applications with Cas13 uh, have to do with around really sensitive nucleic acid detection for RNA targets, whether that's like RNA viruses um, or, you know, taking DNA targets, converting them into RNA, and also detecting them. And so we've been able to show Cas13 for, you know, detecting bacteria from blood, detecting cancer DNA. Um, even you know for agricultural applications like being able to genotype plants that may have been modified so you can uh, either uh, you know figure out if you know there are soybeans that have a specific trait you're interested in or if you you know want to be able to make the engineering of plants easier and rapidly detect like traits you may have uh, introduced into your population and so you know castor keen I think it's a really powerful enzyme and has applications from both healthcare agriculture um, and even beyond so yeah so you mentioned really sensitive detection limits. How, what sort of sensitivity are you talking about? So we can essentially get down to the single molecule. So if wow. you have a single molecule in a solution, and that so the way you measure things is molar, right? And we need a prefix in front of that. So uh, atto is 10 to the negative 18th. So it goes nano, pico, femto, atto. I don't hear about atto a lot. Yeah, so atomolar. <laughs> Levels. If you have about two atomolar concentration in one microliter of solution, that is literally a, a single molecule, and we can detect that. Wow! So you can't really get much more sensitive than that, um, uh, and it allows us to do a lot of things. Like you know, as Omar mentioned, there's all these different applications in infectious disease, in oncology, in obviously agriculture, where we can take these potentially very minute amounts of material or very minor population of a certain type of sequence and detect it. So what we're very interested in now is there's a lot of oncology applications where if you have a disease, if you have cancer and you're shedding this sequence into your blood, we can detect that at a very low frequency. So it's a very, it's, I think it has many different applications that we're very excited about. Wow, that sounds incredibly powerful. Could you tell us about how you took the discovery of the Cas13 enzyme and applied that to create the Sherlock technology? Yeah, so um, when we were first characterizing Cas13, 
you know, it was really exciting to actually see it could programmably target RNA. But what we also saw was that when it was activated by a target, it would end up cleaving any other molecules in solution. And at first we thought it was, you know, a contamination problem. Maybe we have RNAs in solution. Like we need to, you know, purify this again and again and try mm-hmm. to get it as clean as possible. And we spent months um, repeating this and we kept finding the same result. And so we realized that cas operated very differently than other CRISPR enzymes that were known at the time, and that basically when it's bound and recognized an RNA target, it could end up just cleaving anything around it. And we realized that while this might not make it the best cellular tool if you want to specifically target you know, mRNAs or specific genes, mm-hmm. it could actually report on the presence of a target. And the idea was if we could bring in a reporter molecule that when cleaved with fluoresce, we could spike that in, and when cas found, you know, its Zika target, for example, it would cleave this reporter and release fluorescence. And so um, it was very, like, an unexpected route. We had never thought we'd go into the diagnostics, you know, field, or, you know, we were not even thinking about that. We were, you know, trying to make gene therapies, gene editing. Mm-hmm. And so we really followed this unexpected result, and what we started doing is just seeing, you know, can we apply cas to all sorts of applications? You know, can we detect, you know, pseudomonas? Can we detect Zika? Can we detect, you know, melanoma mutations in the blood? Um, we just kept applying it. And just kept working. Um, we even found it could work from saliva. It worked from blood, urine, um, all sorts of you know samples without even purification. Like a lot of diagnostics, you have to take a human sample, you have to purify out the nucleic acid, and then you put it through you know an instrument that's rather complex and it's a lot of you know, um, many steps. It takes time. It takes a skilled personnel. And we were finding that this you know simple enzyme could make just a single step reaction where you could literally spit in a tube, maybe heat that tube up for a few minutes, and then just spike it into this reaction, and you could have detection on a paper strip even. Um, so it really made the whole idea of you know diagnostics becoming you know outside of a complex lab setting and more maybe into the home, into the field. Um, and I think we have really big aspirations. You know, you can imagine being able to detect flu at home or being able to know if you actually have a viral disease or a bacterial you know cold um, or whether you need to go into the hospital or not. So I think you know we're really hopeful to see where we can take it. Yeah, that sounds like a really beneficial application of it. What are the advantages of Sherlock versus uh, other molecular diagnostics? That's a great question. There's a lot of different ways to actually detect nucleic acids and do molecular diagnostics. One of the really nice things about Sherlock is that we have basically this enzyme, Cas13, that does this detection, and it's very specific. So we can tune it so it can distinguish even a single base. And that's very nice because in these applications like in cancer or with certain viruses like with drug resistance, we want to be able to actually detect a specific mutation. And so that makes it very specific. And that's coupled with the fact that once the protein is activated by this detection, it's a kind of a very catalytic mechanism where it's going to cleave many different of these reporter, many copies of these reporter molecules. So it really means that we have this very specific interaction that unlocks this very promiscuous and uh, high turnover uh, detection. So that means that we can dope in this reporter molecule, which we can make very cheaply and get very good detection, even when there's low levels or something that's very you know close in sequence to something else. I think that specificity and low cost and sensitivity combined makes it a really robust method. Um, this is also coupled with the other things that Omar discussed, you know, where we can take it to different outputs and we can multiplex it so we can read up many different things at once. But I think the true power is from this Cas13 specific detection and then activation that makes it really amazing. You mentioned that the activity can be kind of promiscuous. Does that mean that you observe a lot of off-target events? 
the the actual activity uh, is promiscuous, but the way the enzyme is activated is very specific. Mm. So the activity only activates when the casertine uh, recognizes a target through its guide RNA. And the guide RNA is programmed to be complementary to your nucleic acid target. So only if it finds the precise sequence match will the enzyme uh, change in a way such that this enzyme can now start cutting anything in solution. Um, and in that case, it'll cut anything indiscriminately. But what we found, as uh, Jonathan was talking about, was that you know even a single nucleotide mismatch can sort of inactivate the enzyme and not allow it to activate, giving us that ability to detect you know single base pair mutations uh, really, really well. Um, and that's you know really unique from a lot of other assays where detecting a single uh, mismatch can be quite difficult, and you can always have background signal um, from those assays. And so that's a really big advantage of this system and CRISPR enzymes in general. Earlier today, you gave a seminar at New England Biolabs, which I attended, and you mentioned the rescue um, technology that you've recently developed. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so the rescue technology is one of our RNA editing technologies, and it's complementary to a repair technology that we published on re, uh, back in 2017. So rescue is a much more recent development. And these are both technologies that rely on Cas13 being catalytically activated, so we make it so it doesn't cut RNA anymore, but it goes to RNA, and then we can drag something with it. And what we drag with it is an RNA editing enzyme. And so the repair technology dragged with it an enzyme that goes from A to I, mm. and that allows us to correct certain mutations. But what we wanted to do is expand the number of edits we could make. And one big motivation for this is that if you want to make certain edits that can change a protein in a way that it functions differently, um, that could be very interesting for a therapeutic application where we affect a pathway. And as we mentioned before with RNA editing, it's temporary, so you could actually temporarily change a protein a certain way. So what we did with Rescue is that we took this protein that we're recruiting with Cas13, it's called ADAR, and we actually did a lot of directed evolution and rational mutagenesis to modify it, so it actually did C to U changes. Hmm. So it unlocks this entire new potential base transition. And so that was actually a long undertaking that we did and we found that we could actually get it to work effectively and then we demonstrated that we could target certain pathways like the wind signaling pathway we could target beta catenin which is a member of that and we could actually activate that signaling and cause cells to grow just by delivering this targeted rna editing approach so that was very exciting and we're kind of enthusiastic to see how people use this tool this evolved tool for different applications, both in basic biology and in therapeutics. That's really interesting. So you mentioned that it, it it's great at sort of temporal regulation. If you wanted a more sustained regulation, is there a mechanism by which that you could sort of keep a more steady state level and, and maintain the repression or activation of, of, of a certain pathway? Yeah, so uh, if you really wanted uh, long-term modulation of these nucleotides, you have uh, multiple options. So uh, one is controlling how you deliver the system. So for example, if you deliver the system actually as a protein form, uh, the protein will get turned over right after maybe a day or two. And so your uh, tr you know, modulation would be quite transient in that mm -hmm. case. 
uh, if you want something longer, you could then start thinking about maybe viral delivery. So for example, you know, if you go for uh, AAVs, those viruses can actually stick around for years. And so if you deliver this tool using that system, you would actually reach a steady state of editing within a cell and it would stick around for quite a long time. Um, and then, of course, if you really want permanent modulation, you could, of course, do DNA editing and use something like Cas9 or Cas12, where you can install the mutation instead of an RNA and DNA, in which case it would be permanent and last for forever. So you did lots of screening to identify Cas13 and Cas12. Um, can you tell us how machine learning or artificial intelligence played into that data mining? Yeah, so when we actually discovered these proteins, we went through a process of basically looking for certain anchors in the genomes of these different bacteria. We essentially compiled all the sequences from, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, actually, of bacteria, and then looked for certain landmarks. And then near those landmarks, we could find if there were proteins, and if there were proteins that we knew what they were, we could obviously say that. But if they were unknown proteins, we could start to cluster them together and say, well, there's all these different proteins that kind of co-occur with these landmarks, like CRISPR arrays, what are they? And so that kind of clustering and kind of finding similarity and aligning there was a little bit of a kind of, a, I'd say, weak artificial intelligence process where we could cluster things and, and look for what was similar. And then what we did is we eventually found these clusters and then kind of looked for them again, and they turned out to be all the same protein, and that was Cas12 or Cas13. But I think one thing that we're very interested in moving forward is using much more of the additional genomes. Of course, now more genomes are sequenced every year, and there are hundreds of thousands of genomes available now. Using those genomes along with more sophisticated ways of training machine learning on what exactly does a protein look like in terms of just sequence or certain features of secondary structure, and use that to actually go into this expanded data and look for proteins of interest, whether they be CRISPR proteins or other potential proteins that could be used for genome editing or other applications. So I think we're very excited about kind of using both a ton of new data as well as kind of new approaches in annotating and predicting similarity of proteins to delve into these data sets. And how are you planning to apply the knowledge that you've gained from Cas12 and Cas13 research and Sherlock and rescue technologies. How are you planning to apply that in your new lab at the McGovern Institute? Yeah, so I think you know a lot of what we've learned is how to explore sort of natural diversity and you know ways evolution has already created you know useful proteins and enzymes for uh, you know, and how to exploit them for biotechnology. And so I think a lot of what we're doing now is we're trying to maybe find uh, more systems beyond CRISPR that could be useful for you know gene editing and gene therapy. There's still a lot of limitations. Uh, with how CRISPR is used now in terms of, you know, efficiency of editing and even being able to insert, you know, large chunks of, you know, genetic material like large genes, for example, to get permanent replacement. Um, and so, you know, a lot of what we're doing is maybe, you know, there are systems beyond CRISPR that can be used for phage defense um, that could also be, be useful in this way. So we're trying to uh, mine for additional signatures. We're trying to characterize those enzymes in high throughput, so ways to screen them, um, whether it's, you know, in vitro or in bacteria. And then once you have them and can show that there's activity, how do we continue to engineer them using sort of our engineering tool set. So whether it's directed evolution or just screening, you know, through mutagenesis and um, to sort of make these enzymes even better than kind of how they've already evolved. And so um, we're doing a lot of that. We're also applying a lot of these tool sets to 
other, uh, you know, things beyond just proteins from bacteria. So a lot of, um, you know, I think we kind of hinted at this, but what you really need is ways to deliver these proteins Mm -hmm. um, to the right cells when you're doing gene therapy. And our tool set for getting cell or for getting these tools to the right cell type or right tissue type is quite limited. Um, And so we are applying a lot of these, you know, mining and engineering approaches towards viruses to try to either find new viruses that have the properties we want and then to engineer them to, you know, either hit, you know, the right brain cell type or Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to get into muscle better or even, you know, bone marrow and hit, you know, T cells or hematopoietic stem cells or whatever cell type you might want. So uh, I think, you know, there's a lot of problems that need solving and there's, you know, (laughs) hundreds of thousands of bacteria and other organisms we can try to pull uh, solutions from. Um, I was wondering if you could share with us your perspective on the use of CRISPR and gene editing technology um, in current clinical trials and therapeutic approaches such as agriculture. Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, 2019 has been a big year for CRISPR as two uh, clinical trials kind of have begun, one from CRISPR therapeutics, another from Editas Medicine. And so, um, you know, I think... The, you know, time will tell whether, you know, the results are promising and, you know, it'll, if it'll actually work. But I think, you know, in the next few years, we'll start to see, you know, CRISPR technologies actually, you know, start to become approved and enter the clinic. And um, I think for agriculture, we'll probably see results uh, even sooner. Uh, people are already trying to make different types of crops uh, either, you know, taste better or improve yields, um, make them healthier, like a lot of genome editing for like soybeans, for example, to get rid of um, unhealthy oils and put more healthier oils and them um, have already sort of begun. And so um, I think, yeah, it's, it's going to be the next few years. It's going to be really exciting. And do you have any thoughts on uh, the role or significance of RNA editors in addition to traditional DNA um, CRISPR technologies? Yeah. So having RNA editing as a complementary technology for DNA editing, I think, allows for a lot of additional things. I think they kind of approach two different uh areas in a sense because with DNA editing there's a lot of things that you can do you can target things and you dose it once but there's a lot of cases where it may be difficult to deliver or it may be something that you don't want permanently so with RNA editing you have the capability to in some fields use endogenous proteins inside of cells like the natural ADAR and just co-op that for targeting. In our case, we introduce this protein, but I think that there's a exciting area, especially for things that you only may want to induce temporarily um, to have this capability where maybe you don't want around forever. And of course, in the safety aspect, you know, with DNA, that's great uh, you know, that you can do something permanently, but on the other side, if you do something permanently, you don't want it there that's a little bit of an issue. With RNA, if you have off targets, they're not as much of an issue. So I think that will play into a little bit of how these things are regulated. But I think the space is so large, if you think about just the medicines that we can do, that both technologies will do quite well. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, And I want to offer my congratulations on the amazing success that you've seen so early in your career. Um, And I'm super excited to see where your research um, lends itself to diagnostics and uh, clinical therapeutics in the future. So thank you. Great. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. And I want to make sure that our listeners know where to go to learn more about your research. So um, could you tell them where to find your website? Yeah. So our website is at abugut.mit.edu. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast. I hope you learned something about the amazing possibilities CRISPR gene editing technology is enabling in healthcare and agriculture. 
As always, check out the transcript of this podcast for lots of informative links, including the link to Omar and Jonathan's new website. And don't forget to tune in next time when we'll be joined by Rupali DeBoss of University College London's iGEM team. We'll be turning over the interview reins as she sits down with her colleagues and professors to discuss public perceptions of engineering biology.